The material shared within this podcast is based on the personal experiences and learnings of the presenter. Coloplast has paid the presenter for sharing this information. Nothing within this podcast is intended to be used as medical advice and or used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Coloplast Professional Bowel and Bladder Matters Podcast, where we explore various important topics related to ostomies and continence. I am your host, Rachel McDonald. I'm a registered nurse and clinical consultant with Coloplast. Today's podcast guest is Denise Nix. Denise is a master's prepared certified woundostomy continence nurse with over 28 years of clinical practice experience. Her current clinical practice is at M Health Fairview in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She also serves as a consultant for the MHA Safe Skin Collaborative involving over 100 Minnesota hospitals. Her experience includes faculty and associate director in wound ostomy continence educational programs, authorship and co-editor of Acute and Chronic Wounds, Current Management Concepts textbook, as well as speaking nationally and internationally. This is part one of our two-part podcast series on catheter-associated urinary tract infections. Today, we will focus on defining CAUTI, why it's become a focus in our healthcare system, and potential prevention measures. Thanks so much, Denise, for joining us today. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. To set the foundation for our discussion today, please explain what a catheter-associated urinary tract infection is. Yeah, it's a mouthful, so everybody calls it CAUTI, so I think I'll call it CAUTI from here on in. Sounds great. Um, It's an infection of the urinary tract caused by an indwelling urinary catheter that has been inserted through the urethra and into the bladder. So that tube, germs can enter the body, travel along that catheter, and enter the body and infect the urethra, the bladder, and sometimes further in the urinary tract, like the ureters and the kidneys. Denise, if you could walk us through how this has become a focus within our healthcare system today, we hear a lot about it. Could you dive a little more into that? Sure. Well, first of all, studies show that over 40% of hospital-acquired infections are urinary tract infections, and 75% of those come from urinary catheters. The cost In the literature, I've read over $900 a patient, but I know that's an underestimate. I just know it is. And that doesn't include all of the unnecessary cultures that we're doing in order to try to diagnose this problem. Antibiotic resistance, how do you put a cost on that? It's a huge, huge concern. And uh, we've been over-treating these infections for so many years. And now we have patients in the hospital that even infections disease can't figure out. And I think that's why so many people die every year from it. The last statistic I heard was that 13,000 people in the United States die every year from CAUTI. Big, big problem. I think another thing that has really gotten the hospital's attention is that Medicare and Medicaid, which is CMS, considers CAUTI preventable. So today's hospitals don't get reimbursed for treating infections that get created under their care that they consider preventable. And then they also now have to pay fines. 
So it's really gotten the attention of the administrators who are non-clinicians and maybe didn't understand before. These infections are publicly reported. So you can find on the internet some of these hospital-acquired conditions and which hospitals have more than others. And a reputation is a really, really precious thing. So I think when these reportable events, these public reports started to happen, and I, I know in Minnesota, we were one of the first to report our preventable problems publicly that it really got administrators' attention because truthfully, in, at least in Minnesota, before CMS came out with this rule, it was Minnesota law. And we were one of the first states to require public reporting. And the law, was basically the hospital administrators are the ones that lobbied for the law because they did not think that their hospitals had these problems. So uh, there's a, a number of conditions that we, they report besides CAUTI and, you know, pressure ulcers is one of them that I happen to be involved in. So I can, I've learned firsthand the tension that happens around these public reports and when the media gets involved. And then, of course, we're all here for the patient. And uh, when you learn how devastating these infections can be and the death rate and so forth, it just becomes a big concern. I think you touched on this a little bit, Denise, but could you walk us through the evolution of prevention for CAUTI? Yeah. In the literature, it says that urinary catheters have been around for 3,500 years. Can you imagine the first one that I heard of, um, and probably the most common that all of us have heard of, is the Foley catheter, and that's been around for 80 years. So there is a, a long history related to these devices. Um, historically, incontinence has always required a lot of medical, social, and economic resources, and urinary catheters have helped with that. So we overused them. We know that it's a very common, incontinence is a really common reason that patients are admitted to nursing homes. And in fact, it might be one of the most common reasons. And so imagine a fully uh, indwelling urinary catheter enabling a patient to stay home. So very often we were using these devices, these really non-benign, sometimes some may consider dangerous medical devices for quality of life issues and uh, for some of the things that burden us economically, like overstaffing in hospitals and long-term care and so forth. So we were overusing the Foley's and uh, now today we are looking at appropriate use for them. And there's very specific criteria that uh, the CDC has provided. And uh, there are bundles and hospital collaboratives and all around decreasing the use of indwelling urinary catheters so we can decrease the use of CAUTI, decrease the prevalence, I should say, of CAUTI. That actually is a, leads me to my next question. Could you walk us through the um, ANA CAUTI prevention algorithm? Yeah, so you can look into the literature and find a lot of bundles around CAUTI prevention. And uh, the, the CDC has offered a number of really great resources over the years. Uh, but I'm really excited about the ANA CAUTI tool um, well, for, for a bunch of reasons. Um, number one, it's a nurse-driven based protocol that nurses can do 
independent for preventing CAUTI. It's got a lot of buy-in. It was funded by the CMS and was developed to be consistent with the CDC guidelines. It's free and accessible. If you Google ANA CAUTI tool, you will have the tool. So it's just that simple to find. It's not like that you have to have a, a membership or a special password or anything like that. A number of organizations were involved in developing the tool and coming to consensus on what should be in the tool. Of course, the American Nurses Association, the AHRQ, the APIC Association for Professionals in Infection Control, Perioperative Nurses Association, uh, Med Surge Nurses, Rehab Nurses, all of these, Center for Disease Control, as I said earlier, Patient for Partnership. Uh, through CMS, SUNA, which is a, a real heavy hitter um, for continence, and then the Woundostomy and Continence Nurses Society. Um, a lot of experts were involved in agreeing on how the tool was put together. One of the things that it really emphasizes is assessing patients, and this is a nursing assessment, assessing patients daily for criteria for use of an indwelling urinary catheter. So it might be appropriate for me to have a catheter today, but maybe not tomorrow, uh, based on my uh, the overall patient assessment. So that criteria is acute urinary retention or bladder outlet obstruction. And of course, the nurse is going to identify that right away. Uh, they may not know exactly what's causing it, but they're going to notice that the patient isn't urinating. Critical need for INO. And you, Think about uh, some of these surgeries where you need really close measurement, knowing how much fluid is going in and out. Um, patients that are being diuresed in large volumes, we see this a lot in acute care. Prolonged immobilization, and uh, they give CDC, well, in the ANA gives examples like the unstable spine or multiple traumatic injuries. End-of-life care if needed for comfort if needed to assist sacral and perineal wound healing, which uh, my bias is that that's a pretty broad statement and uh, woundostomy continence nurses can be, I think are actually critical for making that kind of assessment. If the patient meets criteria, then the tool has step-by-step -step instructions for what to do before you insert the catheter, uh, proper insertion technique, things that need to be done after the insertion, and then uh, maintenance and monitoring. And then, again, daily reassessment is really critical. If the patient doesn't meet criteria, then there's instructions for assessing bladder emptying because they might not meet criteria for an indwelling urinary catheter, but they still might need intermittent catheterization. So bladder scanning, getting post-void residual, uh, when to stray cath, et cetera. And then in instructions for incontinence care. Wonderful. Thank you so much for walking through that. Um, how have you seen this algorithm um, actually put into practice? I would say it's been out for maybe two years. I think the WOCN just gave it a real boost with a recent publication that they did in uh, the WOCN journal. But I have to say, it's still not widely disseminated. We have uh, CAUTI Collaborative in Minnesota, and I talked to the epidemiologist that runs that, and uh, she had not been familiar with the tool. So she 
I predict, so she's looking at that and will most likely then put it as part of their toolkit for a Minnesota-wide prevention. But this tool was piloted in 17 hospitals, and they saw really good outcomes. And initially, when it was piloted, they did do some tweaks on the tool. So it has been used uh, with success. What other strategies have you seen implemented successfully for CAUTI prevention? Well, um, one thing that I've experienced in my practice and I've also seen in the literature and some studies is using stop orders and reminder orders uh, to assess the criteria for whether or not the patient still needs an indwelling Foley catheter. And I'm not sure that I emphasized this earlier, but if I did, I think it bears repeating that the biggest risk factor for CAUTI is the number of days the catheter has been in. So the longer that catheter has been in, the more likely they are to develop a CAUTI. So we can make a big difference with a patient just by uh, decreasing their uh, time with the catheter by a day or so. So I think there's a lot of merit to these reminders and stop orders. I always say I can't remember to take my antibiotics twice a day. I don't know how the nurses remember everything that they remember. And so I think reminders are useful. There's uh, one study that was um, based on a a systemic review and then later on a a meta-analysis of uh, further studies that came out after that. Um, the first systemic review was uh, 30 studies, and the second one added another nine to that 30 studies, and they were all around catheter reminders and stop orders. And the original review showed a statistically significant decrease in catheter days with reminders and order sets. And um, the updated meta-analysis where they added the other studies, combined them all, and looked at it again, that review showed a decrease in CAUTI by 53%. So reminders do make a difference. And a lot of the, at least in the hospital settings, will build it right into their electronic documentation that will come up and remind people to look at reversible causes. Uh, Reversible causes of incontinence includes stool impaction and constipation. So, and I'd like to, as I list this, think about, uh, just remind that um, every nurse can make a difference here. And these are nursing-driven interventions. And um, I really want to, there's a term that some of my colleagues use or a statement that some of my colleagues say and that every nurse is a continence nurse. And I think this is a really good example of that. So stool impaction or constipation can cause incontinence, restricted mobility and dexterity. Think of all of the patients that we become less mobile when they come in to see us. Um, Irritants like coffee and caffeine and uh, different uh, pharmaceuticals, urinary retention, delirium, psychological disorders. So there's a lot that we can do for our patients that is non that is really strictly nursing to look at um, how can we reverse the causes of incontinence so we're not even thinking about catheters. We can promote alternatives to indwelling urinary catheters um, like the IED prevention protocol so people aren't worrying about skin, external collection devices, body-worn containment products, um, 
no diaper-free hospitals. We're really trying to get away from that concept. The, the patients need those extra absorbent, good quality uh, polymer uh, absorptive products to protect their skin, and they need their dignity. Another intervention that I've seen in practice, but I really couldn't find a lot of evidence around it, but I wanted to bring it up because it's... Uh, has been a hot topic in CAUTI prevention is the antimicrobial catheters. And um, I've looked at some of the bigger reviews. There were a couple Cochrane studies that were done um, in the last decade or so that really showed no evidence for associated reduction of CAUTI and morbidity. 2009 CDC systemic review and Cochrane review uh, concluded that there needed to be larger trials I think the most recent was this Lancet in, in 2012, and there may have been more since I looked at this, but that was a large multi-center uh, RCT, and it showed that the antimicrobial catheters were not effective for the reduction of symptomatic CAUTI. Uh, that being said, um, when I spoke with the epidemiologist that is overseeing the collaborative, the CAUTI collaborative in Minnesota. She said there's that there's probably a place for these catheters, but they we, there just isn't really a good criteria out there right now. So um, perhaps that's something we'll see in the future. Okay. Um, so when pla- when the decision, I guess, is made to place an indwelling catheter, when they, they decided that is the route that they're going to go. What are some of the important steps to follow to help avoid um, the catheter-associated urinary tract infection? And this is kind of what I see, the strength that I see in the uh, CAUTI, ANA CAUTI prevention tool. Um, I, they call it a toolkit, even though it's one page. Um, the strength that I see is kind of like the structured protocols that we see with IAD. This is a structured protocol. It lists step-by-step instructions. I think it makes it really easy for any nurse, really anybody dealing with catheters, to get a real overview on how to insert these safely. First, you have to look at pre-insertion. You have to look at catheter selection. Uh, the 14 French has been the most commonly recommended uh, five or 10 mil balloons. Pericare, hand hygiene. You do hand hygiene first, then you do pericare, then you do hand hygiene again. Uh, And then get ready for aseptic technique, sterile gloves, sterile field. During the insertion, we don't pre-inflate the balloon anymore. We used to. We used to all the time. So that's something new for some of your old nurses like me. Um, insert to the appropriate length. So for men, you insert to the Y connection. And for women, you insert about an inch beyond the point of urine flow. Next, you check urine flow. You you make sure there's urine flow below, before inflation of the balloon. And obviously, you're doing that to prevent urethrotrauma. The ANA tool says that inflate the balloon 10 mils uh, for catheters labeled 5 to 10 mils per manufacturer's instructions. So any kind of medical device, it's so important to follow manufacturer's instructions. And uh, I always tell the nurses, what's the first thing we do with those instructions when we open the package? 
we throw them in the trash. And so it's very valuable when you get new products into a facility to follow the manufacturer's instructions when you're put to, putting together your procedures and protocols. Um, Post-insertion, really important to stabilize the catheter. Uh, that's also referred to as catheter securement because that can prevent urethral irritation. And remember, if the catheter is flopping around, for lack of a better term, it can provide irritation and opportunity for microorganisms to travel. These stabilizing devices, commercial stabilizing devices, help maintain unobstructed blood flow. They should be, again, this is another device. It's a securement device, and it's you need to follow manufacturer's instructions to use it. So uh, something I see common in my practice is uh, staff that'll say, this product doesn't work. And they throw it away. Maybe just use tape. And I'll say, well, well, why didn't it work? Well, it fell off. Well, when was it changed last? They don't know. So manufacturers will tell you what to look for and when to change it. So again, really important to look at the manufacturer's instructions when you're teaching how to use these stabilization devices. Tape has been uh, discouraged because of the adhesive buildup on the catheter uh, could provide another medium for bacteria to grow. So then once that catheter's in, you got it stabilized, then you're monitoring post-insertion. And you're looking for to keep the kinks out of the uh, tubing. You don't want the tubing to form a dependent loop below the bladder because for that will increase bladder pressure and have to make the bladder work harder to put out the urine. Uh, maintain a closed, unobstructive system. So remember in the old days, is okay if I say old days? <laughs> <laughs> You're not old nurses, but I. But for me, the old days is we used to pull apart the foley at the connector site to put their pants on or to you know position the patient more conveniently. That's we don't ever want to do that. We want to keep that system closed. We want to make sure there are no cracks. If any of that happens, you got to put a whole new system in place. In terms of the drainage bag, it's supposed to be kept below the bladder, but not on the floor. It should be emptied with a separate container. Again, in the past, I remember the nursing assistants walking around with the same container, and they would go from bag to bag to bag and empty the urine. Those days are long gone. We really need separate containers uh, for each patient. Certainly need to avoid splashing and contact with the drainage spout, any place where you can introduce bacteria to the patient. Uh, perineal hygiene is important. Fecal incontinence containment devices to keep uh, E. coli and other bacteria away from the catheter are sometimes indicated. Um, and then we need to teach the nursing assistants, the patients, and the families all these things, too, because they're with the patient sometimes more than the healthcare professionals are. I always say one uh, really important staff member not to forget is the transport person. How often do you see transport come in? They don't know any better, and they take the Foley uh, bag and just, you know, throw it right there on the patient's belly and go on their way. So... Uh, change frequency. So when I first started nursing, we changed these things on a schedule, and that's not recommended anymore. The, there are not change intervals are not recommended. 
uh, we're supposed to change these tubes if they're clinically indicated. So you're doing an assessment every day. If they don't meet criteria to be on the catheter, of course you want to take the catheter out. Um, but it also needs to be removed for infection, obstruction, and a compromised flow system, as I said earlier. There is one exception that I read about, and that is uh, patients that are prone to incrustations. Very often, they might need to be changed as often as weekly or twice weekly, depending on their pH and uh, what their crustaceans are. And, and I have to say, I've been asked, well, how do you know if it's once weekly or twice weekly? And I said, you sort of get to know the patient and the number of uh, crustaceans and sort of what their rate is. And so those patients may end up on more of a schedule. Finally, in closing, what would you say are some of the key things that should be considered um, before placing that indwelling catheter? I think the thing I want to emphasize, and if I were just going to say one thing when it comes to CAUTI, is we should always, always be asking, and we should be asking it every day, is there any other way? Must this patient have an indwelling urinary catheter. And in order to do that, we need to know what the alternatives are. So it's not a benign procedure. People die from urinary catheter infections, and in fact, quite a lot of people. Uh, it's a huge concern now in healthcare with the resistant antibiotics. And uh, so it's not a benign procedure. Is there any other way? The longer that catheter is in, the higher risk. Denise, thank you so much for this valuable information. We appreciate your time. You're welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, part of Coloplast Professional, where we believe clinician education related to ostomies and continence matters. For more educational resources from Coloplast, visit us at coloplast.us professional.